0: Today's reading comes from Hebrews chapter 11, verses eight through 16. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to this city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children, because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised.
1: So I wonder how many of you, you don't have to raise your hands, have ever uh, lived for a protracted amount of time in a foreign country. I have not. Some of you have. It's quite an experience because, well, you're a foreigner, right? Um, I've traveled in a lot of countries, but almost uh, exclusively for the purposes of the church, mission trips, and understand to a certain extent what it means to be a foreigner, but only about two weeks at a time. The culture's different, the language is different, the food is different, some of it's exotic, some of it's great, some of it, well, does things to you, yeah. That's part of being in a foreign country. The closest thing I ever had to being a foreigner is when for seven years my wife and family was exiled in the Northeast. Now, I I understand some of you might be from the Northeast, but it wasn't for me. Um, Didn't like it. We struggled with it. We knew we couldn't stay there. It was really clear that no matter what kind of job was available, if it came in the Northeast, we were going to say no. And as a matter of fact, whenever we left the Northeast, by the way, I was born in the South. My wife Used to live on a farm in Indiana. So you can see the disconnect, right? It just wasn't quite right. Whenever I got the job here at ECC, almost 20 years ago now, to come to Bloomington, I think it was the first time that I had a new level. I don't want to see, say a deep understanding, but a new understanding of the Exodus, the biblical Exodus, right? So Egypt was the Northeast. Bloomington was Canaan land, the promised land. And I'm telling you, it felt like that. When we pulled into town, I thought, I've arrived home. I had never been here. I didn't grow up here. But it felt that way from the start. And I've loved it ever since. So I kind of know what it's like to be a foreigner because I lived in New England. But there are other things that make you more of a foreigner than being in a different part of the country where you grew up. And if you were a foreigner somewhere else you might have been exiled. You might have been a stranger. As a matter of fact, you definitely, at least early on, were something of a pilgrim. You were walking in a land that wasn't your own. And you had probably an end date at which you were going to leave that land, or maybe not. But when we think about the Bible... Routinely, these images are used of Christians. They're used of the people of the church. They're called sojourners. They're called pilgrims. They're called strangers. They're called aliens. They're called exiles. And the list goes on. So there's some sense in which all of us, as Christ followers, are pilgrims, strangers, exiles, aliens, in a world that's not our own. The passage that we just read in Hebrews chapter 11 alludes to that. But it doesn't start with the church. It starts all the way back before the church, even at the beginning. But especially the reference to being a pilgrim and a wanderer comes from the life of Abraham. The life of Abraham, a man who was called out of Ur of the Chaldees, to go to a land that he did not know. He didn't even know where it was. He didn't even know where he was going. He knew a general call, but that's all he knew. There was no such thing as interstate highways. There was no such thing as rest stops. There was no such thing as a map with I-65 on it or GPS. He just took off with his camels and everything he owned, and that was a lot of livestock, and he started a journey. He stopped at the top of a thing called the Fertile Crescent and stayed there for a while. His father died, and he came down into Canaan. And he didn't know where he was going. You know what Abraham did? He left everything. He left everything behind that was familiar. He left behind his contacts. He left behind the existence that could have made him who he wanted to be. And he followed this mysterious call from God. And in that place, Ur of the Chaldees, and in the place where he was going to go, Canaan, he was a stranger because he worshipped one God. Nobody around him just worshipped one God. They worshipped multiple gods. There were lots of gods in Ur of the Chaldees. There were lots of gods in Canaan. So he's a stranger not only because he's displaced, but he's a stranger because of what he believes. Nobody around him believes what he believes. There's no church. There's no community. All he has is his family. And they have this strange belief about one God. All his life, he lived in tents. He never established a city where he really had buildings. And he was promised... By God, this mysterious invisible God, that if you follow me, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to give you a son. And furthermore, that son's going to bless the whole earth. You know how long it was between the promise and the fulfillment for Abraham? 25 years. That's a lifetime. You think you've been waiting on God for a while? Try 25 years. And according to the Bible, we're probably confident that Abraham heard from God more than the ones recorded in Scripture, but the major events where God reaffirms the covenant or the promise, there's years in between. And Abraham walks by faith. He walks by faith in a place that he's a stranger. He walks by faith following a God that nobody believes in except him. And then his heritage carries on. Isaac is born and Isaac is in the land of Canaan, the so-called promised land. Isaac, whenever it's time for him to get a wife and shortly before Abraham dies, says to his servant, his chief servant, I don't want my son marrying somebody from around here. Translation, we're pilgrims. I don't want somebody from this place who doesn't know our God to marry my son. So I want you to go away to our family, wherever back home was at the time. I want you to find a wife for my son Isaac. So the servant goes and finds him a wife. That wife, Rebecca, comes to be Isaac's wife. By the way, that's just really odd, isn't it? There's no way I was going to allow my dad to pick my wife for me. Furthermore, I wasn't going to allow my dad's servant to do it. I was going to pick my own wife. Different generation, different time. He picks his wife and Rebecca comes back to live with Isaac. And now she's a stranger in a strange land with a strange man, aliens. It doesn't end there because Isaac has 12 sons. And among those 12 sons was born a son named Joseph. Joseph is born of one of Isaac's favorite wives, Rachel. And because he's born of the favorite wife, Rachel, the other sons despise him. And furthermore, Joseph makes it more difficult because he has these dreams that place him at the center of the universe where the sun and the moon and the stars are bowing down to him and all the sheaths of his brother are bowing down to him. And they say to themselves, are you kidding me? What kind of brat are you? we're going to get you for this. We're just waiting for our chance. And they find it because Isaac sends his son Joseph to look for the brothers in a far distant land. When he arrives, they take that brother, Joseph, and they throw him in a pit. And they say, here's our day. We're going to kill you. One brother saves Joseph's hide. He says, no, let's not kill him. He's our own flesh and blood. How can we do such a thing? Let's just throw him in this pit and leave him there. And that brother decides he's going to come up with a plan to rescue Joseph. But unfortunately, while the brother's away, slave traders come by. Joseph is pulled out of the pit, given to slave traders. The slave traders take Joseph and they go to Egypt. He's employed by Potiphar, a wealthy man in the Egyptian culture. Then he's accused falsely of something he didn't do, so Potiphar throws him in jail. And while he's in jail, he continues to be an upright, faithful person, honest, and full of integrity. And the jailer realizes that before it's all over, as you know the story, Joseph's out of jail, and he interprets dreams for pharaohs. And then he finds himself at the right hand of Pharaoh, kind of like the vice regent of the country, and he he saves Egypt from a famine. But he's an alien. He's a stranger. Egypt's a strange land. Different culture. Different language. And there's Joseph. The rest of the story, as you know, Joseph's brothers end up coming to Egypt to get grain because there's a famine across the land. Isaac sends them before it's all over. Joseph invites his entire family to come to Egypt so he can take care of them. They come to Egypt, they prosper, but they're outsiders. They have food, but they're strangers. They have a place, but they're foreigners. You know what's interesting about that story? When Joseph brings his brothers to Egypt, and when he's dying, He says to those who are attending him, I have one last request. Please, after I die, take my bones back to Canaan. This is not home for me. I want to go to Canaan. When the exodus takes place, Moses is called by God to lead the people out of Egypt. The text tells us the rest of the story. They take the bones of Joseph. The stranger, the alien, the outsider. They go to Canaan. Once they find themselves in Canaan, they actually do build buildings now. More than that, they build a gigantic temple and they worship God and they have a kingdom. But all those people, says the writer of the book of Hebrews, even though it looked like they had landed in the place, they had found the city, they had found their home, none of them had found their home. Because they were actually looking beyond that home to a city whose builders and maker is God. And that city was yet to come. And they did not inherit the promise. They didn't see the day. They didn't see Christ coming says the writer of the book of Hebrews. All that time they were strangers, they were pilgrims in a land that was not their own. I don't know if you've ever uh, looked at a group of Psalms right in the middle of the Psalter. You think of the middle of the Psalms being Psalm 119, and it is just about right in the middle of the Psalter. But beginning in Psalm 120 and running through Psalm 134, we have a group of songs called the Songs of Ascents to ascend. You know what they're about? They're about being pilgrims. Read them this week, 120 through 134, and see if you don't identify with the songs. What were they doing with those songs? You know what they did? They actually got together once a year, and they journeyed to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. The capital city, the place where God resided in his temple. And as they went along, they sung these songs. Together, for mile after mile, they sang these songs. And the songs are about being pilgrims and being in a land that's not really your own and looking for a city. That was the history of the nation of Israel. And you say, well... Now the writer of the book of Hebrews, the promise is here. Jesus has come. That's true, but... But they were still pilgrims. Take a look at the life of the apostles. You know what the apostles did? We see them as exalted figures, historic, people who have influenced the entire world by their little letters to churches. But you know what the reality was? They were writing tiny little letters to tiny little churches, minorities that were being persecuted. They were not in a position of being exalted. They were considered, as Paul said, to be the scum of the earth. People were chasing them all over the Roman Empire and trying to kill them. They were strangers in a land that was not their own. They were persecuted. That was the life of the first century Christians. Paul knew it well. He said, as a matter of fact, I don't even consider this place to be home. And he wanted the people who he was writing to to buy into it. And in First and Second Corinthians, two themes begin to emerge. He says, we have this treasure, which is our treasure, Jesus Christ. We have this treasure in earthen vessels or jars of clay inside us we have the hope of eternal life and it's inside this jar of clay and sometime someday the jar of clay is going to fade away he also did this for an image he said these bodies are like tents Did you hear abraham a sojourner. These bodies are like tents, he said, and eventually these bodies are going to pass away. And because of Jesus Christ, we who are aliens, outcasts, we're going to be raised again in newness of life. What is corruptible, like a tent, like a clay jar, is going to be raised in incorruptibility eternally. Paul also says... um, Concerning their lot in life as apostles. Said, you know, it seems like to me that the apostles have been relegated to marching in a parade. And you say, Oh, that doesn't sound too bad. Marching in a parade. Wouldn't everybody like to be in a parade? Isn't that sort of the center of everything in a particular culture? Different kind of parade. Paul says, Here's the parade. We've been relegated to marching in a parade, and we're at the end of the parade. You know who's at the end of the parade? People in chains. People who are slaves. And Paul says this parade is a parade towards the arena. Think the Roman Colosseum, the arena. And in the back, here we are, chained up. And we're on our way in this parade to an arena. Going to the arena means absolute and certain death. Either at the hands of a gladiator or lions. That's the image that Paul captures, and he says, That's what it is like to be an apostle. That's kind of gruesome, isn't it? Peter puts it this way to the people who are exiles, tiny minority you're an alien and you're an estranger in a place that's not your own. So I want you to live like an alien. And a stranger. Because you're different. You march to the beat of a different drummer. Embrace it. Embrace that reality. That's what it means to be a Christ follower. That's what it means to be part of the church. That's a really fast-paced story of the theme called Exiles and Strangers. In the Bible. But the question is, right, what about us? As those who are Christ followers, who are part of the church of Jesus Christ, we too are strangers and exiles in a world that's not our own. You know what it should mean for us? It means that we should live And think and act different than the rest of the world. We got a different set of values. We view the same reality with a different set of eyes. And to put it in the words of Peter, it makes you peculiar. You're just really odd my friends. You're just kind of weird. I join you in my weirdness. (sighs) We're just kind of weird. Because we think different. We act different. And we have different values. Oh, it's not that none of the values of the world are embraced. It's just, it's just different. So if we're pilgrims and strangers, as we are, we should live and think differently. If we're pilgrims and strangers, as we are, we should expect that we will be unacceptable. So, I want to say something real, kind, and pastoral, okay? Stop whining when you're persecuted. It's the way it's supposed to be. You're unacceptable, and you should expect it. Life is not easy when you follow Jesus, and you should expect it. Buck up, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. Because that's what it means to be an alien and a stranger in a world that's not your own. So, I give you permission to tell me that next week when I'm whining, okay? Because I will, and I'll need to hear it too. Being a pilgrim and a stranger means that we should not expect to be accepted. Third, this one... um, is quite likely to stir up a little controversy. I hope it does. I really hope it does. If we're pilgrims, we should be concerned about too much influence. You heard me right. Too much influence. In our political climate, whether it's right or left, I'm not indicting either. Indicting all, I guess. There is a grasp for power. A grasp for power and influence so that our ideas, whoever our is, ideas or agenda can be placed upon society because that's the way things are supposed to be. And I want to tell you, my friends, the more often we are in power, the worse we are. The church was thriving, exploding under persecution. And nowhere in the New Testament do you see the apostles calling for national reform or a Christian nation for Rome, or any of the sort. What you see is a group of minority persecuted Christians following Jesus Christ. Period. In the story. By the time you get to about 313, things begin to change. And before it's all over, The Pope is the head of the empire. And the church was never so corrupt. Take a look at your church history. As soon as the church is in charge of the secular world, it goes south fast. It becomes corrupted quickly. Why? because we weren't made for this world. I don't mean to be radical about it. I'm not suggesting you're not involved in political discourse and state, local, and national affairs. What I am suggesting is that if you or I try to seize power and create something that's Christian, we are creating self-inflicted wounds it's always destroyed the church. Because we don't have the capacity to hang on to the power. Jesus Christ is the king. And we're not the vice regents. We're servants. And servants just do the bidding of their master. Um... Okay, enough about that. I just don't want to see us fall into the same trap that Lord Acton described on one occasion. Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I don't want us to have power. I want us to be Christ followers. The fourth thing we should do um, as Christians who are aliens and strangers in a world that's not our own, we should hold loosely to material things. Because material things, as beautiful as they are, are only a reflection, the most beautiful ones, of what is truly real, eternal things. That means we're not supposed to hold on to anything too tightly. Not even relationships. As beautiful as they are. The most beautiful relationship is only a dim reflection of the beauty of eternity. So we enjoy it, we love it, but we don't settle for it because it's only an image of something greater. You know, I, I love stuff. i got to admit it, I love stuff. I mean, maybe this will be the last sermon I preach by admitting this, but I wish I was making a half million dollars a year. I would like that. I would like to say I was going to give it all away, but I wouldn't. I don't make a half million dollars a year, by the way, so don't get all well worked up about that. Um <laughs> When you come to the congregational meeting, we vote on our budget. Well, you'll realize I don't, because if I did, nobody else would make any money. But you know what? I I like my stuff. I feel very, very blessed. Uh, Having been here for 20 years, this church has been way more gracious to me than I deserve. And my wife and I have a beautiful home. I love our home. I mean, I do. I just love it. I love the property it's on, out our back door, onto a deck, and the woods are so deep you can't see through them. I love it. I don't love all the deer that eat my bushes, but I love my home. I I love my truck. I'm a truck guy. I got a Ford F-150 and it's just short of being in heaven. Being a Ford F-150, okay? You don't get it. I get it. It, It's, it's beautiful. I, I love my kids. I mean, after all, I had some part in birthing them. Not much, but I love my kids more than my life. But I can't hang on tight to any of them. Why? Because I. And they are made for eternity. So, I've got to let them go. I've got to love the Lord my God with all my heart and soul, mind and strength. And I can't hang on to things too tightly. Or as Jesus put it, which is way better than my little description. Don't place your treasures in earthly things where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break in and steal. Place your treasures in eternal things, where moth and rust and thieves don't break in and steal. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. So being a pilgrim, I've got to remember that. i got to hold loosely to the things that I have Something else a pilgrim should do is always be forward-looking. Always be anticipating and, and looking ahead. And always be delighting in the promise. There's a beautiful promise in John chapter 14. When Jesus is about ready to leave the earth, he says to his disciples, don't be all worked up about this. Don't be dismayed. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If I come again, which I will, I'm going to bring you to myself. You're going to be with me there always. Over the years, in ministry, I have buried a lot of people. And I think I envy them all. Because they have their eternal reward. And I'm still a pilgrim. I've read this passage many times before. But for me it summarizes the great truth that I'm trying to communicate. It was the Apostle John. Before he died he had this vision. He said, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride dressed beautifully for her husband. Is there anything more beautiful than that? I don't think so. Buried a lot of people, married a lot of people. And I've never seen a bride that wasn't beautiful. And I've never seen a husband who wasn't practically quivering as she walked down the aisle. This new home, which is permanent, this new Jerusalem was coming down out of heaven, he said like a bride dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among people. And He will dwell with them. And they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them and be their God. And He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the older order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these are words that are trustworthy and true. Write down these words, because it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And all of you who are pilgrims will someday inherit that promise. For all of you, and I know there's many who are walking through real difficulty in your life. Maybe you're just confused. Right? Maybe you're just trying to find yourself. Maybe there's these longings that seem like they'll never go away. I would advise you not to lose faith and to turn to Jesus. Because the longings that are deep within you, even if you wouldn't identify them that way, even if you're not actually a believer in Jesus, those longings that are deep within you are there for a reason. They are there to be satisfied. They are there to be satisfied by God. And you can get a taste of that here in this life, but that's not the end. The true satisfaction comes with eternal life when you're with God. So see the longings as beautiful and pursue the one who gave them to you. I mean, there's some of you who are walking through Heartache right now because of deep loss. Someone that felt like life itself is gone. It seems that half your soul is empty. You're a pilgrim. You're a stranger. And eventually, the circle will come around and everything's going to be made new. Maybe you're struggling like so many of us do with the sin that so easily besets you. Maybe you're struggling because you know the decisions in your life had created all kinds of havoc and you have messed up other people's lives and you feel horrible about it and you can't fix it. And you've been separated from those that you love. Hang on deeply. your faith because eventually in spite of your sin God is going to make everything everything new it's the hope of eternal life it's the hope of pilgrims sojourners aliens in this world which we are let's walk by faith and not by sight Lord, we thank you that uh, you've given us um, this hope, a hope that is described but is unseen, a vision that is something we accept but don't fully understand, a reality that we believe in but haven't completely experienced, and, and a promise that someday everything is going to be made due. Until that time, let us experience the reality of your presence. Let us feel the beauty of sins forgiven, let us feel the joy of the Spirit, which so often, Lord, wells up within us during worship. As we sing your praises, may we, well, feast on that and enjoy it, but see it as only the beginning of what we will taste eternally when we are with you. So until that day, Lord, make us faithful and give us faith. In the name of Christ, our risen Lord, we pray. Amen.